Hey everyone, this is Michael for the In Common Podcast. This episode is a part of what will be a series of episodes, each introducing a themed virtual conference being held by our partner organization, the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC. You can find more information about each of these conferences on the IASC website. The virtual conference that we are talking about today is called the Commons in Space. And this is taking place next week from February 24th to 26th. And you can register to attend the conference online. And there you'll find that you get a discount if you are currently an IASC member. In this episode, I spoke with two of the conference's organizers, Akil Rao, a professor of economics at Middlebury College in the United States, and Alice Gorman, a space archeologist and professor at Flinders University in Australia. This is the In Common Podcast. I think for a lot of listeners, the idea of the commons in space sounds both really interesting, but also a little mysterious. Like, what does it mean? Because we're used to thinking about like forests and and fisheries, et cetera. So um, to talk about this virtual conference, I have with me today, Alice Gorman and Akil Rao, who are two organizers, co-organizers of the conference. So I'd love to start our conversation just by asking each of you to introduce yourselves. Um, you know, where are you now? What's your favorite color? And uh, how does your work relate to this idea of the commons in space? So Alice, I think we can just start with you if that's all right. That's fine. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, I'd like to start by doing a tradition that we have in Australia, and that's to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Wiradjuri people and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend those to the traditional custodians of all of the lands that you might be listening from. So my name's Alice Gorman. I'm a space archaeologist. And this basically means that I look at all of the objects and places that humans have put into space or places where they've done things in space or even places on Earth where they're doing things that are related to space. And I look at them as an archaeological record. So I'm interested in what this material stuff can tell us about how humans think about space, the kinds of technologies that they use to deal with the very specific conditions that you have beyond the earth and, and the kind of notions of what all of this is that that technology tells us. And, and in particular, I've worked on space junk in Earth orbit. And I, th I think lots of people now know that space junk is a bit of a problem. But my particular interest in this is, is what kind of heritage value do, do objects that are classed as space junk have. And I've also been working on lunar mining. So my background in, on Earth is in Indigenous heritage management in Australia. So, so I've spent a lot of time working for mining companies and out on mining sites. So um, I, I am really interested in seeing how that kind of plays out on the moon and what it means for our conceptions of the moon and what the moon might be in the future. So that's kind of a little snapshot of my kind of interests and in research. Great. Thanks, Alice. So I'm already thinking of some questions I'd love to ask you to follow up on that, but I'll get to that after um, we have the second introduction. So Akil, can you answer the same questions that Alice did, like um, where you are now and how, how your work relates to the commons in space? 
Yeah. Uh, so thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Akhil Rao, a space economist. Um, so I'm in Vermont in uh, the northeastern U.S. Um, favorite color, I guess, reds and blues. But I mostly work on Earth orbit issues. Uh, so space junk, similar to what Alice works on. But from, I think, a different perspective, uh, I don't usually think about the heritage value, although that is a super important value. I typically tend to think in terms of incentives and outcomes. So applying kind of an environmental economist's lens to uh, the management of Earth's orbits, I think about questions like, will profit maximization and similar types of incentives lead to uh, efficient or sustainable orbit use? Um, what kinds of policies might we want to enact to ensure sustainability or economic efficiency in using this resource? Um, and what can we learn about efficient orbit management from other common resources on Earth? Like, I think about fisheries a lot in particular, um, but I mean, you can, you can find similar kinds of issues in lots of other resources on Earth. I guess if I had to describe it in, in uh, a nutshell, I'd say that a lot of my research is built on the premise that space is a new place for humans, but humans are still humans. And so a lot of the issues that we have in other places are likely to manifest in space. And so uh, I think it behooves us to think about how we've addressed them or failed to address them in other contexts as we think about space. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it resonates with, um, I feel like a similar observation Akhil, I've made when I've gone between like the fisheries and farming sectors in my own work. Because there's always the question like, how much can you generalize? How much can you take from one sector to the other? And a part of my answer in my own mind has always been, well, people are people. So you're going to have some of the same, at least broad classes of problems and the broad classes of solutions that people are able to bring to bear to those problems. Yeah. I think there's an interesting aspect of, of what you're talking about, Akhil, uh, to me, which is, is space is so full of utopian visions. And there's kind of like us here mm -hmm. on Earth doing the kinds of things we're doing to the environment and the ways we're running industries. And then there's sort of like a little gap and then bam, space utopia. And right. yeah. that gap is, yeah, it's, it's, people haven't, I mean, there's heaps of speculation about it, but like actually joining the dots is really not happening. And so, so as, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, well, this is really sort of part of joining the dots up, isn't it? Like saying, well, well, how will this play out in this specific sort of economic context, which is kind of the, the underpinning of how people are approaching space at the moment. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, like, when I think about problems with resource management on Earth, uh, like water in the American West, uh, I grew up in the American West and uh, in California and spent a lot of time in Colorado. Like uh, part of the reason there's a lot of water issues there is because when people were designing institutions to manage those resources, uh, they didn't manage them with kind of an eye to the future, with an eye to you know, efficient and equitable resource use. And we're dealing with a lot of those issues today uh, I think it's it's a lot better if we can get it right or closer to right at the start than having to kind of go back in a hundred years and deal with the fallout of having done something poorly. That, you know, really resonates with me as well. I'm sorry, Michael. No, go for it. This is great. Um, because in my work in, in cultural heritage management on earth, which was normally in a development context, it would so often be the case that they would say, oh, let's just see how this plays out in the courts. 
So like there's legislation, most parts of the world have heritage legislation and environmental management legislation, but it was really common for that to happen. And, and particularly if there was a change or a review and people would say, oh, there's a problem with this legislation. They were like, yeah, whatever, we'll see how it goes in the courts. But we can't afford to do that for space, can we? We cannot afford to do that. So I think that planning ahead and getting things right from the word go is just so critical. Yeah, so Akil, I'm going to remind, I, the comparison you made across sectors resonate with me again, because I'm, I'm, I know enough about kind of water management in the West that it, you know, it was based on this idea of prior appropriation, first in time, first in right, the mm -hmm. idea in many mm -hmm. states that you have to, the idea of beneficial use, that in order to establish mm -hmm. a right and maintain the right, you need to make sure that you're using it. Um, like, are some of these same ideas playing out in space? The idea that you got to go and claim it if you're going to have some kind of property right to a part of space? Yeah, I mean, I think Alice can maybe speak more uh, articulately about how this is coming out in discussions of the moon. Um, mm. But I think I see this in Earth orbit quite a bit, um, that if you want to, say, secure access to some particular orbital paths, uh, let's say you want to launch a bunch of satellites to some particular region and they're going to, you know, orbit with a certain period and at a certain altitude and so on and so on. Uh, you have to actually launch the satellite. Like you can get so far by saying, okay, we've got a plan to do this and let's get licenses and Hey, you know, whatever the appropriate governmental entity is, depending on where you are, like, please prevent or try to prevent others from our country or whatever from, from going there. Um, but at some point the rubber meets the road and you just have to do it. And if you don't do it, somebody else can scoop you there. And so we're seeing some of that happening now, I think with uh, SpaceX and Amazon arguing about Starlink and Kuiper about um, can they adjust the orbits and will that infringe on someone else's right? But Kuiper hasn't launched, but Starlink has launched and so, it gets into sorry, these what, issues. What are those? I'm, I'm not, I'm not up sorry. on the, yeah, well, I know what Amazon is because I assume it's what our like, the monopoly that Jeff Bezos is using to conquer the world. Right, that, that. Right, so yes. that. Uh, so Starlink is uh, SpaceX's satellite constellation. They're launching thousands of satellites um, across a variety of orbits to deliver um, internet broadband type services. Okay. Um, and Kuiper is um, Amazon's sort of similar, maybe equivalent uh, idea of launching thousands of satellites uh, not clear, I think, exactly what services they'll be delivering, but they'll have thousands of satellites that will presumably be delivering some services to someone. Okay. Um, and the issue here is Kuiper hasn't been launched yet, and they have filed a request to use certain orbital regions. Starlink is in the process of being launched, and so there's a bunch of those satellites up there, and they're now asking to use some of the regions that would put them in conflict with Kuiper. And who's, who's the governmental entity that gets asked to do this? Is there some like supranational government? Like, is this UN? Like who? There is not a supranational entity okay. uh, as of yet. Um, so these companies are going before the FCC. They're both American companies. Okay. They're both going before the FCC to get clearance to do things there. Um, but you can imagine a scenario in which, you know, maybe a Chinese company or an Indian company or an Australian company doesn't want to go before the FCC and yeah, then, then who do they go to? <laughs> yeah. Like no, no international, 
coordination at that sense. So there's a few things going on though. And, and I think what Akil's talking about, like, like the place, the orbits Kuiper wants to occupy, like at this point, they're notional. So we're kind of talking about places and locations that interestingly enough, like they're conceptual, they're mathematical equations and they change all the time. So even trying to conceive what is a place in space, as some of our anthropological colleagues have explored, is really interesting when you get to orbit. And not only do you have this kind of sort of fuzzy notion of place, but there's also the fact that the whole sole function of objects in orbit is to deliver some kind or receive some kind of electromagnetic spectrum. So the work that they do is largely invisible and also requires regulation because just like there are limits on what you can put into the same orbit, there are limits onto how much you can broadcast within a certain band or frequency. And people are laying claim to these. And I suppose it's a good point to drop in the fact that the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 forbids territorial claims in space. And it's very clear on that. And recently, the US, for example, has reaffirmed its commitment to the Outer Space Treaty. But there's lots of kinds of, just as Akhil is describing here about, about a place where there is yet no satellite, but that is still kind of in dispute or is still kind of in some kind of limbo between existing and not existing and orbit is kind of, earth orbit is kind of full of those kinds of paradoxes, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, but, and it's not as simple as saying, well, I own this orbit. It's simpler on the moon because there is actually a more, uh, a more intuitive cartographic sense of what place is on the moon, which mm -hmm. we don't have in orbit. I think imagining orbit, is I don't know what you think a kill, but it's kind of like it's a bit of a mind crunching thing because we we have to. It's in fact what there's a, a philosopher called Timothy Morton who has uh, theorized this thing called the hyper object, which is something massively distributed in space and time, and you can't ever see it in one go. You can only understand it by its effects, and for most people on Earth, the effects of objects in orbit are uh, the function of receiving uh, navigation or timing or communications from space. It's receiving a service, which they don't even necessarily connect to satellites. Or every now and then, seeing a bit of space junk re-enter and like visibly seeing it burn up. So, so I think for a lot of just everyday people on Earth, that's the extent to which they're made, they're kind of their consciousness is forced to confront the incredible volume of space that's outside Earth in Earth orbit. And, and then you come down to the stuff Akil is talking about, which is kind of about regulation and, and the, the whole sort of economic thing of it. So there's such a big distance between, I think, how people imagine what's going on in Earth orbit and then the kind of stuff Akil is talking about which, which is all about, you know, commercial advantage, I guess. Right. When you talk about space junk, are you talking about it using the framing of like a congestible commons? 
Like, are we worried about space junk filling up space and there not being enough room in space the same way that we have too many cars on a highway? It's similar, but pretty different. So it's an enormous volume. Having said that, like we, when you see pictures of space junk, they're usually some kind of uh, visualization or reconstruction that gives you a very false sense of the distance between objects. And things are very sparsely distributed, but all the same, even so, though that's the case, uh, there's still, still also far more stuff packed in there than you might think. It's just the bulk of the stuff is microscopic in size. It's tiny, tiny particles. The issue isn't that the space is physically filling up. The issue is that the more stuff is in there, the more possibilities of collision between objects happen. And any spacecraft will, every minute of the day, be being bombarded by natural objects in Earth orbit. And if I follow this thread through logically, I may get to the point where I say that there's natural and cultural objects in Earth orbit lose their distinction. I'll say it now, lose their distinction when we get down to that sort of nanoparticle uh, size. Like, how do you even tell the difference? But every spacecraft every day has little tiny bits of stuff tinkling against its surface. So that's, they call it the debris flux. So that's happening all the time. And over time, that sort of gradually can wear away at a spacecraft surface. But the real concern is a collision between something big enough to cause both objects to fragment into further pieces. And this leads to something I think many people have heard of, the Kessler syndrome, which came out of a 1978 paper by two specialists in, they, they started out studying what might happen to astronauts if they were outside and got hit by micrometeorites, hit by natural objects. What would happen to them? What was the likelihood that that would happen if an astronaut went outside? Then they, then they realized that in fact, it wasn't the micrometeorites that were the problem. It was actually going to be bits of orbital debris. So this is back in the seventies. They started with that premise. So they started modeling how much stuff was in orbit. And then they said, okay, so we have this much stuff. Is it ever going to form planetary rings? Like we see on most of the outer planets. So is the earth ever going to get artificial rings that just naturally coalesce? which is a bloody great question. And they determined that that was probably unlikely to happen because there wasn't enough mass present and, and predicting into the future, there was still not enough mass. Well, Akhil has just been talking about the mega constellations, the Starlings, Kuipers, and there's other ones planned as well. So I don't know, maybe that's not going to be the case for that much longer, although admittedly they're all in low earth orbit. So mass is constantly being pulled out of that. So anyway, to get back to, to Kessler and uh, Burton Courpelet, they calculated that a certain point could be reached where collisions between bits of space junk would turn into a, a, a positive feedback, a runaway effect, a bit like greenhouse gases, where it, you wouldn't have to put anything new into space. Collisions would just keep happening there'd be more bits that would collide with more bits that would collide with more bits. There would, you would never be able to stop that cascade of collisions. And in that case, certain parts of space, it would no longer be possible to launch anything into orbit there because it would immediately become destroyed by these collisions. More bits, more bits, 
morbid orbits, morbid stir. Right. <laughs> okay. so that, that's the end result. This is, this is the, if nothing is done at this point to try and remove some debris from orbit, this is where we might end up. Some people say it's 20 years away. Other people say it's 100 years away. And by then, we will have come up with some mechanisms to effectively remove some of that. But at this point in time, we do not have those mechanisms. Okay. So, Akhil, you're an economist. I love the term space economist, by the way. It sounds just like very cool. So, economists like property... I was property. inspired by Alice. There we go. Okay. Um, so, I'll just... Uh, stereotype, stereotype you a bit and say that economists like property rights. Sure. Um, do you think part of the solution here is property rights? Can we think about property uh, rights when, we're, when, when Alice is telling us that it's, we can't think about space the same way and it's based on equations? Like how does that mess with how we view about this like very important part of our policy vocabulary? I mean, you could write, you could write down a definition of a property right in space, it would be kind of a wonky definition. It wouldn't quite, I mean, I guess, I guess the short answer is, I'm not sure that explicit property rights are a part of the solution here. And the reason is exactly the kinds of definitional issues that Alice was talking about. Like if I define a right over one particular path, and let's suppose that I even account for, oh, you know, things are changing over time. And so I do some fancy math to account for that that path is intersected by a whole bunch of other possible paths. And when I start to say I own this path, then I'm starting to say that I own little snips of where it intersects other paths. Oh, but if somebody right. else owns one of those paths, what do I really own and what do they really own? It starts to get very dicey that way. And so, I mean, you could do it. It's just, I don't think that that necessarily solves the issues, but I mean, I, I think we could still think about property rights as like an analytical device to help us conceptualize the nature of the problem and the nature of different solutions. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that explicit property rights is going to be the answer in large part because of these definitional issues, even if you could wave away the legal issues. Okay, great. I was thinking that, Akhil, you've also indirectly referred to one of the ongoing sources of debate, which is where does space begin? At the moment, some people are saying, well, we, this is, we should just get rid of that as a question because earth and space are the same system and it doesn't matter. But this has been a sub subject of debate for a long time because of what Akhil just described. If you say space begins at 100 kilometres or 90 kilometres, which is generally called the von Kármán line, 100 kilometres? Maybe I'm getting miles and kilometres mixed up. A hundred is right. A hundred is right. And Australia is actually one of the few countries that has legislated that. So it says space begins at a hundred kilometers, but then you have something in a very low orbit. And it's the thing about orbits is I think a lot of people imagine them as circular, like a sort of Newtonian clockwork thing, but of course they're not circular. They're actually elliptical as our friend Kepler showed us. So every orbit has a perigee and an apogee, a point where it's closest to Earth and a point where it's furthest from Earth. And if you want something to be a complete circle, you have to put a lot of energy into making it be a complete circle. And there are satellites 
who have those kinds of orbits, but mostly they're elliptical. So at some point they will be nearer Earth and further away from Earth. And often their point of nearest Earth is underneath the von Kármán line at 100 kilometres. So what does that do to your lovely definition of where space begins? And there's lots of others as well. So there's a definition of space. They call it, it's, it's like um, humans can survive unassisted to a certain altitude. And beyond that altitude, you need to, you basically need to be in a space suit, even though you're not in space, you need pressure suits and all that kind of stuff. So there's a, a definition of where space begins, which is about the limits, the physiological limits of the human body. And that's used in, in for certain, but I guess in aerospace medicine and other things. And you could say space really begins above the point where aerodynamic drag, that process of space objects getting dragged back into the Earth's atmosphere, uh, above the point where that doesn't happen, which would be about 2,000 kilometres or so. Does that sound right, Akil? And Sounds uh, plausible. And um, below that, you know, everything is still sort of really part of Earth and you have high So even that, even in terms of that question of property, where do you even define where space property is? When, when does it become space and not Earth? And I guess I've got a lot of sympathy with the people who are saying, look, we're over this question. Let's just, just move on. But in legal terms, this, so many parts, pieces of legislation depend on dividing airspace from outer space. So we still have to tackle this stuff. Okay. And um, are there new uh, policies that have been passed, say, by the U.S. in the last year that are really changing things? I'm aware that there's been talk of like a space force in the United States. I don't know anything more about it than that. Um, what do we think about like current events and how they're shaping I, I can't, I, I, this space, like how, <laughs> <laughs> and how, yeah. you know, what are we expecting in the future in like the next five years? Before, I, mean, I, I would like to conclude like our conversation about orbital space, I guess we're calling it. And then we can talk about like the moon and Mars. But so to conclude like our conversation about orbital space, like what do we expect coming down the pike in the next like year, five years based on what's been happening recently? Oh, gosh, I think we're at such a critical turning point here because particularly because of those big mega constellations, the Starlinks and everything else. So they're going to change how people access Internet on Earth. They're going to commercialize it. So this is absolutely cementing the end of the era of government provision of satellite services, I think. Uh, we're also looking at radical changes to the night sky and how people uh, uh, experience it. So already the Starlink satellites are incredibly visible and, you know, people go outside to watch them. They're very excited by this. Other people are looking at the, the changes to the visual night sky as the loss of heritage, a loss of a global heritage that everybody has a right to. And in the past, we used to have a movement for dark skies. People were creating dark sky parks to ensure that it was at least possible to go somewhere where you could fully see the Milky Way. Well, Starlink and the other mega constellations are going to, you know, chuck all of that out of the water. They've kind of sidestepped the, the whole concept of having protected dark skies, and it's only going to get worse. So I think we're 
I don't know. Well, I'll be interested to see what Akil thinks. I have a horrible feeling we've lost the battle in Earth orbit. I'd like to be more optimistic, but um, so I think over the next over the next five years, as re relating to Earth orbit, we're going to see uh, uh, I think a complete change of sort of how people look at it. I think the public are going to increasingly see it as something artificial and cultural rather than natural, coming back to those interesting distinctions. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily, but from my perspective as an archaeologist, it's a big cultural change that will have reverberations in many parts of human life. So mm. that's kind of what I'm expecting. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think building off of what Alice was saying, I think the big story uh, is these mega constellations. Like, uh, I find it hard to imagine even the question the next five years in space without thinking about those. Um, and I think that sort of just focusing on the orbital aspect, um, I mean, we're going to see a lot more satellites launched. We're going to see, I think, uh, a real birth of a satellite servicing industry of satellites that whose main task is to go up there and fix satellites or move satellites around or harvest satellites and start building things in space. Uh, I think we're going to see that take off. Uh, I think we're also going to see more in the way of regulation. So the FCC and the FAA and NOAA in the US, um, they have been doing a lot of work to regulate uh, rocket launches, to regulate satellite electromagnetic spectrum use, to regulate what kinds of imaging equipment can go up there and what kinds of pictures they can take and sell. Um, so I think we're going to see more of that. In the past few years, a lot of the regulation has been somewhat light touch in that regulatory authorities are wary of doing too much right now as they're still watching things shape up. Um, but I think that five years from now, someone will probably feel a bit more confident in taking a bit of a, a heavier touch and, and, you know, putting some regulation in place that presumably some people will like and some people won't like, um, probably to manage spectrum or debris or something like that. Okay. And I should have clarified this before I think a bit more. These two sets of, these two constellations, it's quite a word, constellations of satellites that are going up. Are these satellites doing all a variety of different things or do they all kind of work together for one purpose? So it, the business models are a little bit unclear, I think, at the moment. Um, in theory, they, like at least for Starlink, uh, which we have the most information about, I think, of these, uh, they'll all be working towards the same goal of providing internet access um, okay. for different customers in different regions. Uh, they may be doing different things in that pipeline, but they will all be doing that. Uh, I haven't heard of anyone who's launching a constellation that's like half taking pictures and half doing broadband, uh, but maybe maybe such a thing is planned. I don't know. Okay. I suppose that's even, it's an interesting term, isn't it? Because we think of constellations as stars that are linked up to form a picture, but in Earth orbit, constellations are related satellites launched by generally, well, not always, but often by the same company for the same purpose with a basis in a national thing. So the GPS um, network is the US's navigation network. Beidou is China's navigation network and GLONASS is Russia's. So they're all constellations related by location, function and source of launch, launching 
nation. So, but this is interesting because full, and of course they're all, the satellites are often built by big aerospace companies. So it's not like they're, they're sort of these pure civilian things. They're, they're, and they're often dual use, which is an interesting term saying something has both a, a, a accessible civilian function and a military function. And in fact, I don't know, I don't know what the case is there for Starlink and the other ones. Yeah. The business models are really unclear right now, I think. Okay. So um, I think one of the, you know, some of the other main topics in the conference next week are also going to be on what's happening with the moon and what's happening with Mars. So I'd love to kind of shift to that um, topic. And so Alice, you had mentioned that you've been thinking about lunar stuff for a while. So what's happening there? How is that? I mean, you, you know, one of you or both of you commented that like uh, lunar territory feels more recognizable because, okay, it's a sphere and we can think about place and space this kind of the same way. Um, is there a now a lunar commons that's being subjected to some of the same dynamics? And can we think about it the same way we think about commons, a terrestrial commons? I think so. So the moon comes under the outer space treaty. So nobody can claim territory there. And the outer space treaty also says that, you know, space is accessible to everybody. Everybody should have access to space resources and everybody should receive the benefit of space resources. There was a further treaty made in 1976, which is commonly called the moon agreement. And this was a little bit more specific about the idea that the people of Earth should share in any benefits of using a common resource like the moon, which belongs to everyone. So all that stuff is, is very, very clear. But what we're seeing happening, I mean, it's amazing. 1972, when Apollo 17 left the moon, was the last time humans have actually been to the moon. So next year, it will be 50 years since the last person left the moon. Now, uh, NASA is proposing to send the first woman and next man. Uh, China is planning lunar surface missions, quite possibly crewed missions as well. And there's heaps. Everybody's going to the moon. Everybody. And we're in a situation. So no one can claim territory. That's all understood. That's all fine. The tricky part is who owns resources? So if you extract a mineral, do you have the right to sell that mineral? The US is arguing very, very strongly that you do. Um, and I think a lot of people in the space world would kind of say, well, sure, like if people are going to live on the moon or visit the moon for longer periods of, of time, you have to be able to use local resources to survive. And the other plan is use lunar resources to go on to Mars. And I think a lot of people would say, okay, fair enough. So if you can actually extract oxygen, so, so this is like mining, you know, resource extraction. If you can get oxygen and water out of the moon and you're there, sure, you should be able to use them. So there's a sense you would develop a local lunar industry or it's in situ resource utilization, it's called. The idea then that you might actually sell lunar resources for profit that will not be put back into sustaining a, a lunar 
colony, a lunar, I don't want to use the word colony actually, but you know, some kind of lunar habitation uh, is something that I think people feel quite differently about. The situation we have at the moment is everybody's saying, sure, outer space treaty, great. But the US has set up a, a set of principles they call the Artemis Accords. So Artemis is the name of their next lunar surface program. A nice contrast, Artemis is not only a moon goddess, but she is the sister of Apollo. And in the Artemis Accords, people sign up. It's a bilateral agreement. And this kind of runs counter to what we kind of always assumed would be the case before, which was a multilateral international agreements. So we kind of have two models at odds with each other here uh, in what's going on. So in the middle of all of this, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about lunar heritage. There's over 60 locations on the surface of Earth, of the moon, where humans have put stuff. So that's, I'm kind of thinking about it in that context. But there's some other interesting ideas that have emerged. So uh, Christopher Whitehead and Aiton Tepper have proposed extending the model of legal personality, which has now been applied to environments and geographical features on earth, to the moon as a way to kind of manage all of the competing claims to use its resources. Something I'm super excited about is at the Global Commons uh, Conference, Commons in Space, uh, there's a group of us who are going to be presenting the first public um, exposure of a declaration of the rights of the moon, because what is being left out in many of these discussions is the, is the thought that the moon has an environment of its own that has value in its own right that deserves some level of recognition. So we're going to talk about the moon having rights, not just being a resource for humans to use, which I will add is generally what space people mean when they talk about sustainability. Hmm. So okay. I'll stop there because I'm sure Akhil has some thoughts about this. Well, I, I mean, I think the one thing that I would really add to this is that there's there's a lot of definitional issues that become challenging as well, right? Like, so if we think about a satellite in lunar orbit, do we think of that as a part of the lunar environment? Do we think about water use? So if I extract water from the lunar surface, and then I sell it for profit, but to somebody who lives on a lunar orbiting satellite, uh, where, where does that fall in our taxonomy, right? Like there's, there's a lot of these definitional issues, which, I mean, maybe you say fair enough, somebody will figure that out and fair enough, maybe they will. Um, the other issue that I think is worth discussing is, is um, among many, is that, I mean, people on earth have preferences over the status of the moon like people who will never go to the moon. Like if, you know, thinking about the dark sky movement, I mean, there's plenty of people who would be very upset if they would never get to see a totally dark new moon again, because there's going to be a bunch of lights from heavy equipment doing stuff. Mm. And mm. that kind of value is a real value. Like in environmental economics, when I teach that course, I talk about the existence value of polar bears. Like some people really value just knowing that polar bears exist. And that's a real source of economic value. And it's something that we should account for as we're making these decisions that will impact the number of polar bears uh, around. And so similarly, I'm not sure that there's a really clear legal mechanism to get us to think carefully about the existence value of specific lunar features and how we might be altering that 
as we do different things. Um, so there's, there's a lot of discussions I've heard about like, oh, what if we set up a strategic water reserve uh, near the moon and, and, you know, we do these mining activities and how do we balance, you know, mining versus the, you know, oxygen that people need to live and so forth. Um, but I haven't heard many people talk about existence value. Mm. I could not um, agree more with you, Akhil. And I think for me, looking at what's happening on the moon, so the proposal at the moment that's, that's the one that's getting the most backing is that people will go to the lunar South Pole to extract water resources from the permanently shadowed regions. And I've been thinking about the aesthetic value of the permanently value, shadowed regions. So the reason water ice exists is because there are these deep craters and because of the angle of the moon, of the moon's tilt and the angle of sunlight, these shadows, shadowed craters have not seen sunlight for 2 billion years. There are 2 what? billion year old shadows. The only light they've been exposed to is starlight. And I think that is extraordinary. And there are only two other places in the solar system with permanently shadowed regions like this. Think about Earth. I don't think there are, I've had this discussion with people say, where are permanently shadowed regions on Earth? And I don't mean dark places. So a cave is dark, but it's not in shadow. We don't have permanently shadowed regions because the landscape is so dynamic and the, the sun moves quickly and everything changes. So these two billion year old shadows, and they're called, they're, in heritage terms, they're what we call an associative landscape because no one's been there yet, with the exception of the ashes of Eugene Shoemaker. There is one human site uh, at the permanently shadowed regions of the South Pole. But we have this association because the craters are called the craters of eternal darkness. And just as there are craters of eternal darkness at the South Pole, there are peaks of eternal light. These are places where the sun always shines. They are always uh, in light. And, and what Akil is talking about is if what we can see, you can see some of these, these uh, craters. Um, they're harder to see because the poles are, are not as visible to, to us from Earth, but you can see them sometimes. What, what if suddenly people on Earth can see lights, can see these, these shadows being changed by blasting and whatever. Lunar mining is going to be a whole interesting thing from that point of view. But we have this, so that one of the proposals is that using the 24 hour uh, uh, terrestrial day solar power available at the peaks of eternal light, automated mining machinery will be set up to go and extract the water ice from the, from the um, craters of eternal darkness. And it seems to me that this is an extraordinary landscape of, of light and shadow of chiaroscuro that we have only begun to consider, as Akil says, the existence value of. And this is something that comes up in world heritage as well. So people often say, why does it matter if something gets world heritage listed? I'm never going to go there. But people do actually find it important to know that places they may never visit. That people are are upset when things get things on the world heritage list get put onto the list in danger and they don't have to been there they don't have to live there they don't have to have personal connections to it 
it's important to know that it exists. And this is part of the rationale behind UNESCO's project on the memory of the world as well. And I think in terms of what Akil is saying as well, we forget that there are amateur astronomers on Earth who are out there photographing the moon every night. They know its landscape intimately. And they're going to be a force to be reckoned with if anybody messes that up for them. Hmm. It's not like what the visual impacts are going to be are unclear, but people on Earth are going to notice this. And again, not wanting to say predict or close off avenues of people's response. Yeah. But in general, in my conversations with people, they are horrified to learn that the moon may be mined. Horrified. Yeah, I think in part, Alice, because of this fact that you mentioned that, you know, no one's been to the moon in 50 years. I think it's, well, it's, it's not been a part of my like cultural imagination growing up because it, you know, it had just been so long. And so I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that these kinds of things are maybe being planned of like mining the moon or even like having people live there at all. Like it sounds, um, it's very surprising. Um, okay. Uh, I want to shift gears one more time and give each of you an opportunity to talk about Mars. Cause I know that's something else where some stuff is happening. Is there a similar conversation happening about Mars as there is it's happening about the moon or like, how is that space developing? Well, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. <laughs> so it's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Um, well, Mars has so many technological challenges to getting there and surviving there. And, and I often, I feel annoyed because people talk about it as if it's just a matter of money and will. Mm-hmm. And it isn't like we haven't on earth at this point in time, we've never made a successful closed biological self-sustaining system where you could have, you know, an endless cycle of, you know, water and plants growing and food and fertilization. We've never done that even on earth. So how people think they're going to do that on Mars, I have no idea. Right. So, um, and of course Mars falls under the outer space treaty as well. No one can claim territory there. But it's also a bit further away. So you can get to the moon in three days if you have to. So if Elon Musk decides he's going to claim the whole of Mars, well, it could be a good two years before anybody gets there with uh, some kind of law enforcement uniform on to say, no, you can't do that. So I think people often have the analogy of space as a, a wild west territory sort of thing which is a really interesting analogy for a whole range of reasons and then space lawyers always point out that's not actually the case space is very well regulated in some ways it's just that some people don't like the regulations but by the time we get to mars it's so far from earth you know i really think um how will you even enforce such things out there so that's going to be interesting Okay. Yeah, I, I want to I kind of piggyback off of what Alice was saying about uh, the biosphere uh, and then another point about enforcement, right? So, so maybe starting with enforcement, I think that there are a number of folks in the space community, I think, who get very excited about the prospect uh, of, oh, you know, we're going we're gonna to start a Mars colony that's going to be totally separate from the Earth. It's going to have nothing to do with the Earth, our own legal structure and, and so on, right? And 
I think one of the things that gets overlooked is that, well, if you have assets on Earth, like there are Earth legal authorities who can seize your assets. Uh, I mean, if, if SpaceX, if SpaceX were to start building a Mars colony and doing things that were against international law, as long as SpaceX has corporate officers on Earth, has corporate assets on Earth, like these are all things that are within reach of the long arm of the law, you know? And so like, unless someone is thinking about, okay, I'm going to go to Mars and totally cut myself off from Earth and totally just freestyle it there with absolutely no connection to Earth, the law does have some purchase on you, right? And so I think relying on this notion that, ah, well, they won't get here for a couple of years and we'll build up our space Mars army and, you know, duke it out. Like, I think that that's, that's maybe uh, a little wishful. Um, but, I mean, could you set it up on Mars? Could you do that biosphere? And I, I as Alice points out, we've never done that yet. And there's this new report that's come out um, from uh, Partha Dasgupta. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's, uh, it's an environmental report that looks at assessing the role of the Earth's biosphere in production on Earth. So taking a step back, uh, as an economist, I think a lot about production functions, how much of capital and how much of labor do you need to put into a thing to make some widgets, to make some shoes or something like that. Um, and typically we think about, oh, well, you know, you buy a bunch of machines, you have a bunch of workers and you make shoes and what else is there, right? You can make shoes on Mars if you get machines and workers, right? Uh, what's the problem? Uh, the problem is that we've been ignoring for many, many years, the role of the biosphere in production, that the mm. workers need air, they need water, that air and that water gets provided to them, not by the manager, but by the planet, that there's water filtration that happens on the planet, that there's air purification that happens on the planet. And there's all kinds of these things that happen. Ecosystem um, services. Precisely. Ecosystem services are a real thing. And they're a huge part of our kind of natural endowment uh, and a huge part of our production functions on Earth. And so as we start talking about going to Mars and setting up production there, we're really talking about substituting away from ecosystem services that the Earth provides in favor of ecosystem services that humans would provide. I mean, we have such a poor understanding of all of these ecosystem services on Earth that it's no wonder to me that we haven't been able to build a closed, completely closed biosphere on Earth. Mm. It would be astounding to me if we can solve all of these technical challenges, understand the scientific uncertainties and do that on Mars in the next 10 years. I mean, I often say that I think the physics problems of getting to Mars are the easiest problems that we have. Like you need propulsion, you need thrust, you can build a big rocket, you can figure out how to do that. It's hard, don't get me wrong, it's really hard. But it's still better understood than the biological challenge of what are all the trace minerals that we actually need. How do those actually get produced? Can we actually produce them? What happens if you run out of one trace mineral? What knock-on effects does that have? Um, and that's, again, before we get to the social and the economic challenges of what are you going to do? Which are something, yeah. How do people actually self-organize to provide those services, even if we have the technical, technical know-how? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's it. you're tying this back to an important part of the sustainability discourse that we've had on earth for a while, right? The hubris of assuming that we can continue to substitute natural capital for um, hard infrastructure. And the fact that those things are actually not fungible. This is, it goes back to like Herman Daly and other like foundational ecological economists who have said, no, it turns out you can't do that. Um, 
Okay. Well, I mean, if this is a taste of what's to come, it sounds like it's going to be a really terrific conference next week. Um, are there any final thoughts, things you're excited about that you want to share with folks before you see a bunch of them at the conference next week? I'd like to direct people to uh, a collaborative artwork that I have as part of the conference with my longtime collaborator, the US artist, Jonathan Keats. It's called The Cosmic Living Room. And this gives you an opportunity to get a little bit creative around the idea of common spaces in outer space yourself. So I won't say too much more now, but please go and check out the Cosmic Living Room on the conference website and get inspired to, to make something of your own that relates to the commons in space. That sounds awesome. Thanks, Alice. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that I'm excited about, uh, most excited about this Earth Orbit Commons panel that's gonna be happening. Uh, I usually think about common property resources from a very economisty perspective. And I'm really excited to hear from scholars who've been thinking about this from maybe slightly different perspectives and uh, kind of broaden my mind there. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to learn more about the Space Commons, sign up for the conference, which is taking place next week from February 24th to the 26th. As I mentioned in the introduction, we will be producing additional episodes for each of the ISC virtual conferences happening later this year. And you can find the full list of these conferences on the ISC website. As always, you can find previous episodes of the InCommon podcast at your local podcasting app and on our website, incommonpodcast.org.